You're tuning in to Lovecraft Country Radio. There's some strong language and spoilers ahead. Buckle up. Please, listen to me. Adora escapes with your cousin Ethel. She grows up, she marries Montrose Freeman together. They have a beautiful baby boy. We call him Tick because Atticus is really a mouthful. And I fell in love with him. I, I am in love with him. I don't want him to not exist. But we can't change any of it. This future. My, my baby. Okay, um, that messed me up. That really messed me up. And I'm mad at you. You're mad at me. You're mad at me again. We're not warning you. I'm mad. I This episode is so huge and so much and all the feelings and Hattie and Letty. Uh... Okay, so it took a lot for these characters to learn that they have to work together. But a trip to the past might have been all they needed to <laughs> finally get their shit together. Yes. This is episode nine, Rewind 1921. Welcome to Lovecraft Country Radio. I'm Ashley C. Ford, podcast host, writer, and horror enthusiast. And I'm Shannon Houston, a writer for the HBO series Lovecraft Country and mother to three free Black children. Amen, amen. And a turtle named Giannavelli. We will never leave Giannavelli out of this. <laughs> Hello, Giannavelli. Mommy loves you. <laughs> so, quick recap. There was so much going on in this episode. Yes. So, Atticus, Letty, and Montrose go back in time to the night of the Tulsa riots to save the Book of Names and reverse Lancaster's curse. So not only do they have 24 hours to save Dee before she dies, they also have to try to get the Book of Names before it burns in Tulsa, which forces them all to confront horrible family trauma that occurs in the middle of a massacre. And it is vivid. It's very vivid. Um, all the Tulsa scenes are hard to watch. And we talked a lot in the writer's room about how we could do an episode that is set in Tulsa during the riots. And how there's a way to do that episode where you just feel awful the entire time and you just basically want to die. And mm -hmm. there are definitely parts of this episode where I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Um mm -hmm. But true to Lovecraft Country, there's still beauty in this episode. There's beauty in Tulsa. Oh, yes. There's beauty in these Black families. There's beauty in the resistance, the fighting back that I can't wait to talk about. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just watch, you know, you watch the history of things that have happened to Black people in this country. And you're just like, we have really been fighting for a long time. And we are really mm -hmm. tired and in the middle of watching this episode again, I just thought about Jocelyn Hernandez. That iconic line came to mind. The line is, Ho, why is you here? Mm. Why is you mm. here? Why? White people. <laughs> we did this thing. We create this town. It's beautiful. It's black. It's well-to-do. And you can't leave us the fuck alone. So again, Ho, why is you here? Ashley, help. Listen, you know what this episode reminded me of? 
You know when white people like to ask you what decade you think you should have been born in? <laughs> like this was some, this was like a, when I went to college, this was an icebreaker that people tried to do a lot, oh my which God. was like, what decade should you have been born in? What decade would you go live in if you had the chance? And I sort of understood what they were trying to do with it. But as a Black person, obviously, the only answer for me was, bitch, the future. Future decades. That's the only decade. The future decades are the only ones where I might have a chance at being closer to free because let's be honest about what this has been like for a long time. Like, I should have been born in 3030. That's how I feel about it. That's when I should have been. That's the only answer for Black people. You're going to have to link up with our girl Hippolyta. I know that's So right. that y'all can work this out because I too feel ready to just skip ahead to the year 3030. And the great thing about that is that Hippolyta will be joining us yeah. later today. Her actual name is Anjanu Ellis, but I think at this point she'll be Hippolyta in our hearts for a long time. In mine forever. So I'm so excited <laughs> to have her later with us. Obviously, this episode, like all the other episodes, <laughs> was very loaded. Mm-hmm. But this is a situation where I actually, for the first time, I'm like, we actually have to go scene by scene. Like, we have to digest yeah. this and really talk about how these scenes show us new sides to these characters that we've been living with for so long. So let's start with this opening scene where our girl D is really going through it, to say the least. Oh, yeah. She's sick. She's... Not doing well, bro. Her arm is looking kind of grody. It's real nasty. Okay? It's looking kind of gangrene situation. And the family has really come together and finally started talking and saying what they know and telling what they know and seeing if they can work together to save D. And part of that, I think, is in realizing how they have failed D so far at this tough point in her life. So we see Dee slowly transforming into another Topsy and Bobsy, and mm-hmm. it's terrifying. The demons who, at the end of the last episode, that got their claws in her, clearly, as I suspected, you were it. turning her <laughs> into something otherworldly and terrifying. Yes, it is that thing where the family has to look at the results of them not paying attention to her. And we talked a lot about that in the last episode. There is a cost to little Black girls when you ignore them, when you don't listen to Mm -hmm. them, when you are so wrapped up in your own problems that you literally forget that they're going through stuff. So this is the physical manifestation of that. And it is ugly, and it is horrifying, and it should be. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people watching this, they're going to be mad at our heroes because it's like, you're too late. Like, this shouldn't be happening. It's taken this horrible thing for you guys to actually get in a room together and really talk about your problems. But the reason that we made that choice in the writer's room is because we were like, but that is what people do. Like, Black families, all families are so guilty a lot of the time of waiting until something goes horribly wrong to realize that they should have been doing more. Um, So as our people are thinking of uh, ways to save D. 
obviously all these secrets come out. Tick is looking to magic. Yes. And he thinks that they should bribe Christina into helping Dee with Titus's pages. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's an issue with that, which is that Letty already gave those pages up. Yep. Um, Then we have Ruby coming along, and, and she's asking Christina to do it for her. Um, since, as we know, they're in this, like, deeply strange but kind of hot relationship at this point. But, of course, Christina's not just doing it for Ruby. It's that weird space that Christina exists in where it's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll help you. But it's not free. Like, nothing is free with her. And she has her own ambitions. So... I think, you know, some people might be asking the question, why even bring Christina in? What did you make of that scene? I keep thinking about the fact that at the end of the day, Christina has had more access to this information than anybody else. Right. And I think about that a lot. I think about how in so many of like these industries and places that we think of as overwhelmingly white, It is not necessarily that these people are better at doing the work than others, Mm. obviously, just as Christina is not necessarily a better witch wizard or anything of the other than um, Atticus and even Montrose. Right. It's just that she has had more access to more information for longer than they have. Yes. And I love that this relationship between her and the rest of our um, characters continues because it's really accurate. Like, it's really accurate. The idea that, like, Christina's not going to lie. She has access to all the information. And at the end of the day, that just makes her a resource they c- literally can't afford to give up. She does help them. And unfortunately, of course, true to Lovecraft, it's like it gets even more complicated because Christina's like, I need the blood of Dee's closest relative. Yeah. And Montrose has to finally admit to possibly not being Atticus's father. Um, it's assumed that he's the closest relative since Hippolyta is still MIA. But what Montrose is saying is that closest relative could actually be Atticus. Oh, and that line really killed me where Tick is like, mom cheated on you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you could see that, like, he, like, it was like, how much of my shit can crumble? Yeah. Like, how how much of this can fall apart at once? Let's keep poking the bruise. <laughs> and Mancho said, no, we all had an understanding. When you go through something like Tulsa together, you have an indescribable bond. Yes. And that I understood. Me and Mama and George, we, we grew up close together, son. What we went through that night at the massacre, you live through something like that, it makes an unbreakable bond. And that bond between Montrose, George, and Dora, that's the reason that we ne- we don't fully resolve this question of lineage, right? right? Christina is able to partially heal Dee with a spell that restores her arm. It's a temporary fix. Because Lancaster used blood magic, they have to fully heal Dee with this spell from this very powerful book, the Book of Names. Right. And one reason that we wanted to do this is because we wanted the question of paternity to shift away from who is the biological parent. We talk about blood and lineage a lot on this 
podcast and on the show. And it's very interesting and important to me as an adopted kid because I'm like, but blood isn't all, you know, mm-hmm. blood doesn't always automatically translate to family. And that's what's happening when they're in Tulsa with Atticus and Montrose. We needed that moment where Montrose speaks this truth, which is, I am your father. I always Mm -hmm. wanted to be. And that's why it doesn't really matter if George is your actual biological father because you're my son. And that's a really powerful moment. And I think it's also combating our white character's obsession with bloodline and lineage, right? Right. So Montrose, George, and Dora are the only ones in both their families to make it out of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. Everyone else dies in the house, and we see that, you know? It's trauma bonding. It's trauma trauma bonding. It is. And it's it's weird, too, because I'm also like, but it's also kind of beautiful. Like, it's beautiful to me that they made this commitment to each other after surviving this horrific thing. It's beautiful to me that Montrose is, has been holding this secret in, and George did too, right. because it was like, and Dora did too, they all did, because it was like, that's actually not important. What's important is that we are all a family. But of course, it's it's easy to say that when I'm not Atticus, right? I'm not the person right. on the receiving end of yet another shocking revelation. So of course he's angry because it's this is bigger than just another lie from my dad. He, one of the things that he's saying is, like, I kind of, I I tried to love you because you were my dad. The things that you did to me are the kinds of things that I shouldn't have to try to love. But because of right. this blood connection, I thought that I had to. And also, side note, I was also looking at Uncle George and being like, oh, I kind of wish that was my dad. So yeah. it's really messed up. And and it takes Tick and, and the other characters literally going through the multiverse machine back to Tulsa 1921 to make sense and of everything and to come to terms with these secrets and these lies and and a lot of the trauma that we've seen over the course of the season. Right. So they start with the Stratford Hotel. And I wanted to just say, like, when in the writer's room, when we talked about what do they see as soon as they land, we talked about different versions. We talked about a version mm-hmm. where they would go through the machine and everything was on fire already. And it was you know, it was already chaos. Right. And we realized that that wasn't the way to go. And we found out that the Tulsa massacre actually happened on prom night for a bunch of kids. And when I read that, I literally just cried. I I just thought, wait, no, you're in your prom dress and you're getting ready for like a fun night. You're 17 years old. Yeah. And then prom is canceled, and you kind of don't know why, and you're hearing news of maybe a potential situation, but you don't like again, you have no idea what's coming. Right. And Atticus and Montrose and Letty are now back there. And this entire experience is to me all about them bearing witness. They don't have to think about what it meant for Montrose to survive Tulsa anymore. They're going to see it, which is also what makes the opening scene kind of troubling because Montrose is so clearly terrified to do this. And Letty and Atticus are literally, like, rushing him again because they have a limited amount of time. But (laughs) let's talk about that for a minute. What were you thinking about Montrose and, and the rest of the gang when they landed? I was thinking about the fact that the fear 
Montrose had in Tulsa as a child would have been the same fear and anger that he has now. Like, he's never really had the opportunity to process yes. those feelings. Yes. So there, so he's kind of stunted in that place. Like his anger and his sadness are both in stunted places inside of him. And so taking him back into this environment, I was like, oh, they think he's just being Montrose from episode four, kind of trying to sabotage nope. stuff, right. trying to mess stuff up there. It's like, because his fear in their present day looks the same as his fear in Tulsa. Yes. But the context is different. And they don't have really the context for Tulsa. They have the story. Yep. But they don't have the experience. And so as they go along this journey and they see what would have happened to him on that day, they see what his world was like in that time. They see the people he encounters, the relationships he has with those people, the regrets he has, the mistakes he made. Like, as all of that is building, it's like they don't even see Montrose, really, until you get to almost the end of the episode. Right. Until then, it's like they're still dealing with him in a way that does not acknowledge what is actually happening. And in their defense... It's not like he's telling them what's happening. Right. Right. He's not. As a matter of fact, he's defending some of the horror that they see. Yes. And I think that was the other interesting thing. You know, they get to Tulsa 1921. They get there on this night. And I think for our audience, too, you get there on this night and you're like, okay, like you're kind of preparing yourself for a particular type of violence. Mm -hmm. And instead, they show up at Montrose's house. And they see young Montrose getting beaten by his father, Verton. And mm -hmm. it's shocking to everybody because it's like, well, no, wait, we thought we were just coming here and going to go through hell trying to get a hold of this book because of the, the white violence that's obviously going to be happening. But then we're seeing this other family violence within our, this Black family. And... And it's so heartbreaking, right? Because mm -hmm. you hear Montrose defend his father. I deserved it. And Letty has to tell him nobody deserves this. Yep. So I just, you know, we've talked a lot about these kind of relationships. Um, and I think that's such a great example of of how deep these these things go, how much you can actually stand there and witness your old self, your child self being beaten and still think that it was because you did something wrong. Yes. And it's one of those things that I want to make sure we reiterate and talk about the fact that just because it's an explanation doesn't mean it's an excuse. Yes. For his actions. Yes. Looking deeper into a character and why they do the things they do and why they perpetrate the harm that they perpetrate is not giving that person a pass right. for the harm that they perpetrate. So going into this and talking about like who Montrose is and like why Montrose does what he does and having a look at, you know, these experiences that might have led him to this place is not to say like, what can you do with a person who's been through all this? Because right. clearly we see Dora and George went through similar things and they didn't right. end up like that. Right. We see that. But there's a conversation to be had about the manifestation of pain. Yes. And what it means when it shows up. Yes. It's sad to see him 
blame himself for being harmed. But when you watch somebody look at themselves as an innocent child and continue to blame themselves for being harmed, is it no wonder that that person can't necessarily find compassion for those that they have harmed? Right. And again, not an excuse, just an explanation. An explanation. And he's he's so haunted by it that... What does he do? He he messes up the plan. He splits off yes. and runs away and disappears while Letty and Tick are talking. And so then Letty has to leave and go and search for the book so that Atticus can go find Montrose. And I love this moment, too, because before they split up, um, Letty and Atticus have this really small but beautiful scene. And mm. it's like, it made me think about the responses to Gia, You know, Letty says to Tick, we should name him George. And that's her first time actually acknowledging to Atticus that she's pregnant. Of course, she knows he already knows because she and Montrose talked earlier. But it's this moment, and I I got crushed because when she says it, I just got so warm and happy. And then Atticus does not respond warmly. It made me think about how a lot of people pointed out that Letty is not getting the same Atticus that Gia got. No. The sweetness that we saw in episode six and the way that he courted Gia, not knowing who or what exactly he was courting, Mm -hmm. that's not the same person that we're seeing in this present time. And it is upsetting because we do want Letty to have that, but it's also true to life. They're in a completely different relationship. He's a completely different person now. So it sucks, but it's like... You know, I actually thought he didn't say anything because he wanted to let her have that. Mm. He's already gone to the future. He knows that they have a son. Yeah. He knows that that son's name is George. She didn't get to tell him that she was pregnant. Yeah. He already knew. She did, he didn't even get to pretend that he didn't know because Montrose told, you know, before they even got to have the conversation. Right. So at this point, the only thing in my mind that Letty has really gotten to have a moment with Tick about in relation to this child is the child's name. Yes. And in that moment, he could turn to her and say, you do, we do name him George. Yeah, yeah. And I already know that we name him George. Yeah. And I felt like instead, he decided to let her have that and to let her have that moment of thinking, this is when I decided to name my child. I love that. I love that interpretation. I just wanted them to make out. I was just like, (laughs) I know you have several things to do, but can we just... No, okay. No time for making out. Okay. Moving on. So they split. Yes. Tick thinks that Montrose is looking for George. He thinks he's going to try to warn George about the future, Mm -hmm. but that's not what he finds when he finally finds Montrose. It's a very different scene. And we're with Tick and Montrose watching young Montrose and a young boy named Thomas that Montrose has feelings for. Um, This scene is yet another soul-crushing, beautiful, powerful moment in the episode for me. What did you think? I, uh, sorry. Feelings. (gasps) Oh, feelings. I, uh, this was really tough for me because even though Everything that's happening, like, in this story up until this point is just like, oh, my God, I don't want to, I don't want to watch another person die like this. I definitely don't want to watch another, like, possibly queer person die like this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see it. And, like, 
this scene still played out in such a way that it's like not everything about this person has to die. And that's not enough. Mm. But they had this effect on Montrose. Like this this moment had this effect on Montrose enough that it brought him back here. Yes. And that's huge. Like yes. that's so big. And enough that it gave him like the room or the strength or the space or whatever it was to finally talk to his son. Like to finally tell him what's really going on. Yes. That that happened was just amazing and beautiful. And I loved that moment, even if I didn't love what it took to get there. Thomas won't mean much. He's just the first in the long list of sacrifices I made to be your father. I keep thinking about this thing Montrose tells Tick. Saving Thomas isn't actually going to change the future because it's just one of the many sacrifices I made on the way to being your father. Right. And I keep thinking about this idea of sacrifice that has been given to me that I have since adopted. And the idea of it around Black people in parenthood, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that, like, I know growing up, the idea that, like, you know, oh, their mom really sacrificed for that or their dad sacrificed or, mm-hmm. or so many people sacrificed for you to have this mm-hmm. was such a huge thing. And it was such a like, it was such a, a weight to be put on you, especially as a young person. Yes. But it was also something that you were grateful for, that people had done this work before you to ease the way for you. Yes. But now I understand sacrifice as a term that means giving away the sacred and giving away what you find sacred, giving away what is important to you. Yes. And it occurs to me that there are a lot of situations where our our parents or our ancestors made sacrifices that did not actually put us on the path toward freedom or Mm. liberation. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely sacrifices. And you don't want to think of those things as wasted. And I, I don't think effort is ever wasted. Effort in the name of, of love and care. And I don't think it's wasted, but I think it can be misguided. And I think we've seen a lot of misguided sacrifices in the name of caring for Black folks and caring for our oh, children and caring for yes. our people. Yes. So that's something sacred that Montrose is giving away. It's love. Right. It's hope. It's freedom. The things, everything you need to be able to actually raise a free child, he left in Tulsa. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And he's back and he's going to, He's he wants to fix it, right? That's part of it. I, I love everything you just said. Um, But it's, but, but yes, there's like this question of, should you make those sacrifices? Should you have made mm-hmm. those sacrifices? And then at the same time, there's this weird feeling of like we love that he did because we love that Atticus exists and and Tick I needs to hear this. He needs to hear like right. I want to be your father. It's it's the only thing that I want. And Tick is has convinced him at the end of it to not interfere. Mm-hmm. And so we watch this brutal scene where Thomas gets shot and when Montrose falls watching Thomas yeah. and Tick is holding him up. Talk a little bit about what you thought of that moment. It just made me think of the bond between parent and child and this idea that even as you tell me these hurtful 
complicated things, even as I'm still unsure what it means to you that I am your son and that we are your, like, I know that it's important to you, but, but am I important to you, mm-hmm. who I am, not just your vision of me? Even as all of that is going on, when you begin to fall, I'm going to hold you up because I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not going to let you fall. And there is, in that moment, I think the beginnings of the opportunity for them both to heal and forgive. But Tick has to be able to accept that this may be the most that Montrose can ever give him. Right. And sometimes forgiveness, you know, just because we are talking about, we're talking about abusive relationships between parent and child. Forgiveness doesn't always mean, oh, I see where you're coming from and I understand and now we can proceed and love each other and hang out all the time. It's not like that sometimes. Nope. But there's another level to this scene um, that we see and it's the baseball bat. The baseball bat. Uh, Montrose starts telling the story again about how the man shows up with the baseball bat. Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. He saved us all. The last thing he said before he disappeared was, I got got you, kid. You're the mysterious stranger. And just, my goodness, where's those white folks out? Oh, my gosh. Iconic. I'm not supposed to say it. I worked on the show. But this is fucking iconic. (laughs) This is iconic. It was so gratifying to watch. To watch, like, them come at Tech and watch Tech just essentially give them the whooping of their fucking lives. Like, even at one point, there was, like, a white woman in the scene who was, you know, catching her licks. Uh-huh. And I was like, yep. Yep, you could get yep. it, too. Should, shouldn't have been over there. What are you doing I don't here? know what you thought. <laughs> I don't know what you thought, but you shouldn't have been over there. That's what happens. That's how I felt. It is what it is. It is what it, it is. is. What you it didn't is. have to be here. Ho, why is you here? Why is you here? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and we've been, we've had Jackie elements throughout the show, right? That crazy yes. opening in the first episode. Jackie Robinson with the baseball bat smashing the bejesus out of Cthulhu. And sure did. We've had several other iconic baseball bat moments throughout <laughs> throughout the series, and we had them all there, partly because we knew we were gonna have this scene in episode nine. And again, you know, I want to say, when you think about the Tulsa massacre, we were fighting back the whole time. We were organized. Our people were organized. Mm. Um, Again, outgunned and outnumbered. And it's tragic. But if you think that there weren't Black people out there busting heads wide open with baseball bats, you're wrong. All manner of defensive tools were used. And that's also why we had this moment, not just because we wanted it, you know, we wanted that cool tie-in, but just because, again, and, and obviously, like, you can talk about 
Jackie Robinson as a Black American hero and what he stood for and what he means to us mm-hmm. and taking that rather wholesome image, right, of Jackie Robinson, even though that story is filled with violence, too. But taking that image and then handing the baseball bat to Tick and making him the hero in his own father's story. So for me, that scene, it's it's the look on young George, young Montrose, and young Dora's faces when they're looking up at this guy who came out of nowhere saving them. It's so bizarre. It's so strange. It's so beautiful. Um, I love it. I just love it. And it's also just this great interpretation of the fact that sometimes the battle that our children are going through is a battle that could save our child self. Yes. Which is its own beautiful thing and its own beautiful part of the story. And and along those lines, there's this quote that I just thought of, and I don't actually know exactly who it comes from, but I, I remember reading it on um, Son of Baldwin's website, probably mm-hmm. on Twitter, years ago. But the quote was, uh, what you heal within yourself, you heal for your whole family line. Yes. And I wrote that down in a journal, and I think about it a lot. And again, you know, we talk a lot about the work required. It's not simple to do this work of healing. It might involve a multiverse machine (laughs) um, or some version of a complicated process. So it's not easy to do, but if you just start doing the work, we will see effects, right? We We will see the effects in Letty and Atticus's child, That's what we hope. That's what we pray for. So we have Montrose and Atticus having this incredible moment. And then Letty is having a completely different but equally incredible, horrifying everything experience in Dora's house. So let's talk about our queen, Letty fucking Lewis, and what's going on on her side. So while this is all happening, Letty is not only pursuing um, Dora's family, like trying to get there, but also trying to outrun actual attackers during the Tulsa. And I'm just like, oh, she should not be by herself. And Atticus is like very much the upfront, like face of uh, hero of the show so far or whatever. If if you're thinking about him that way, for me, it's still Letty. Um, (laughs) She's the hero of the show. And she has this conversation with Hattie who, to be perfectly honest, when she first walks in and Hattie looks at her shoes, I was like, clock. <laughs> clocked. That's why Hattie, Hattie is the said, truth. Hattie said, nah. Clocked her from moment one. Yeah. Um, but then they realize it's going down. Dad's going to the roof. Vernon is going somewhere else. They're both going to try to fight for their homes right. and for their community. Letty knows what's going to happen. She already knows that the house is going to be Mm -hmm. burned. And Letty having to know, to know you're not going to get to have that conversation. Searching for the book of names, being found by Hattie, who is immediately like, I knew, like, I knew something going on. Love it. She's immediately not here for Letty. And when Letty tells her what is happening and what's going to happen, Hattie says, I need to focus on saving my family. Right. And Letty has to then appeal to her 
and to the fact that you will be saving your family, just not the family that's in this house. <sighs> the performances here are just so incredible. It feels so real. And like you said, Hattie has to make a choice, which is if if it's true that I'm dying and if it's true that we're all dying, then I do need to think about the future. Um, and there's that incredible line where she says, uh, when my great-grandson is born, he will be my faith turned flesh. When my great-great-grandson is born, he will be my faith turned flesh. You know, we talked about this a lot in the room. It's it's very simple, quote-unquote, to say, well, Letty wouldn't be scared because she knows she's not going to die. She's invulnerable. She knows that now. Guess what still is awful? Watching people burn to death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, standing there and witnessing that, and you're pregnant, but we, the writers, were like, no, she has to try to save somebody. Like, wouldn't wouldn't you try? And it's like, but she knows what could happen if she, you know, like, it's so complicated. Yeah. You want her to fix it. You you want, really, what you want is for our heroes to go back in time and make it not happen, right? We had that conversation, right. too. Um, but that's a whole other different issue. So they're just, they have to get the book and run. But she doesn't run. She stands there with Hattie, and they start to pray. And Hattie also says that line, um, I hope the good Lord is ready. That's when she became mm -hmm. iconic in my eyes. Because it's like, like God needs to prepare for you showing up. I love you. Yeah, I stand you. So they start saying the prayer. And as the house is going up in flames, and as Hattie herself is going up in flames, we hear this incredible voice, Sonia Sanchez, this poem that plays out called Catch the Fire. And... I'll never hear that poem the same way again. How could you? I don't know. It's insane. It's so, I like. It's revolution. And that's what's hard. Like, it's, you know, what grabs me about this moment with Letty in the house, having her moment with Hattie, is that there's the idea of justice here, right? We want to fight for justice for people who have been taken wrongfully from us. And the truth of the matter is, because those people have already been taken, there is no real justice. We can have accountability and we can find ways to give rep retribution for what has happened um, to our people and to our community and to individuals. But justice, when someone has been killed, when someone has been murdered, right. like, what does that really look like? Because we can't bring them back. Right. What Letty understands is that these people are already gone. Yeah. These people are already gone. We remember them. We honor them. But we have to move forward. Right. And moving forward doesn't mean forgetting and it doesn't mean pretending it never happened. It means letting it inform the future. And she understands that these deaths right now inform the future. Yes. And she, you know, that final scene where she's literally walking through fire and yes. the planes come because, yes, there were planes dropping bombs on this city in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. And it's such a strange feeling, again, to go back to what this show does. It's like, it doesn't just give you one thing. I am angry. I am upset. I am heartbroken. I am empowered seeing Letty walk through fire and hearing 
Sonia's voice playing over it. And then Montrose comes in with this final speech as the portal is closing. And I was thinking about his words when you were just talking. Mm-hmm. Because what he's kind of saying there is we did it. Like, it's like we did it. We got the book. We're all about to get through this portal. But I cannot forget these people. Mm-hmm. And he starts naming his neighbors, his family members. Like, this was a whole community. This person had this, this store that I miss. It's complicated. Like, our heroes win, but they can't really win. Right. So, speaking of coming out of the portal and them coming back to Hippolyta, let's bring on Anjanu Ellis to talk about that iconic scene and her iconic character. Anjanu Ellis, welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. I have been watching Hippolyta, and I'm also just a fan um, of your work, uh, even previous to Lovecraft Country. And so... This is so much fun and such a big deal to have you on the show today and to be able to talk to you about this amazing show and this fantastic character. In the time you've spent playing Hippolyta, what have you learned from her? Because I feel like I learn from her every time she's on the screen. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that she presents one way early in the season Mm-hmm. And then with every episode, there's more that's revealed about her core and and who she who she is. And I find that I find mm-hmm. that really exciting because it could have been a portrayal of a woman who is this repressed 1950s woman in a situation, a husband, a marriage where she loves her husband and she wants to be something, but it'll never be realized. Mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of the that's the sort of tease of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then with every episode, we see that it's far from what it appears to be. Yeah, it's been such an incredible experience watching it unfold. And then, of course, episode seven, which, you know, today we're talking about episode nine, but in episode seven, um, you have this incredible adventure. Can you just talk a little bit about what it was like working on that episode and how it, Maybe how it helped inform, like, your performance in episode nine, too. So I just think it's, I love the idea that with with Lovecraft, Jonathan Kidd, who's one of the producers of the show, talks about this idea of Afrofuturism, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what we thought the future would look like and what we are stunned every day about what the fact future actually looks like. Mm. Some of it is beyond our imagination. Some of it is the stuff of our nightmares, right? right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're living right now. And I think that's what places Lovecraft Country uh, in a particular and exciting way in, in culture right at this moment. And then for Hippolyta, to see this woman sort of be a timeless character, yeah. That she that she has a foot literally has a foot in the past, has a foot in the future, and we just have to watch this. And I the idea behind Lovecraft for me is is just that it is about the the black immigrant experience in America. Mm-hmm. And when you extrapolate from that, when you 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 know enlarge that idea that it is about black people being travelers, black Americans yes. particularly 
being travelers. Yes. And she just takes that idea and that notion to just this, you know, whole other level, like right. literally in space. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Like yes. it's not just moving from Mississippi to Chicago to find another life, another identity. It's moving from Earth to this unknown world to find another identity. Yes. Um, and that was that was exciting. And then so we go to the 20s and she's you know, you know, hanging out with Josephine Baker. And, yes. and I love that. I love that it just defies expectation. You don't know where she's going to end up. Mm. And so in terms of my portraying that, I just had to give it all to Jesus. I have no other words to say. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, I just, and I decided that very early on, because when I, when I started working on the show, Everybody would say to me, the costume designer, the sound guy would be, have you read episode seven? Have you read episode seven? And I would say, no. And it was, it was, it took me a long time to read it because I was afraid of it. Mm. Uh, But then when I read it, I just thought, what a tremendous experience this will be to play something like this. What a tremendous, hopefully, experience it will be for Black women to see Black women portrayed in this, in this way. Yes. 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 I know we're both just like, yes, (laughs) yeah, like we can't stop saying yes because it really did feel that way for me. Um, That connection between episode seven um, and episode nine is that through line for me that, that, that power of a Black woman, that power of experience and knowledge and wisdom and not having to hold back Mm -hmm. and being able to fully express it, it just blew my mind and continues to blow my mind. Because on this show, we talk a lot about undoing toxic coping mechanisms we've learned Mm. and that have been passed down from traumatized generation to the next generation. Like when you talk about, you know, like the fact that this is the future for people who lived through, you know, the 60s and people who lived through the 20s and, you know, the 1800s and the 17th, people who lived through that, we're in the future right now. And we're still facing so many of the same things in addition mm-hmm. to that traumatization that was handed down. Mm-hmm. So what did that work do for Hippolyta and her family? Her spending this time learning what it means to name yourself. Mm-hmm. What did that ultimately do? You know who I think about? I think about Hortense Spillers. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ooh. her work, but she yes. has this essay, um, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. What she says is, is that if America didn't have the Black woman, they would have to invent her. Ugh. Mm. Because we are the expository for its its exercise, it, E-X-E-R-E-E-R and Mm -hmm. E-X-O-R of its demons. We bear the scar. We bear the stain. We bear all of that. Mm -hmm. Black American women do in a way, particularly that no other species on this planet Mm -hmm. does. And so with that sort of thinking in mind, you know, that we, we, this, all of this stuff that's sort of attached to us. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with who we think of ourselves, mm-hmm. yes. right? So we are constantly named, constantly named, constantly named. And so a lot of our existence, and I have to say, is pushing back, pushing yeah. back and pushing away 
from these these identifiers that are attached to us that we are not. Yeah. That we are not. And so we we are constantly have having to before we can get to step A, <laughs> we have to undo <laughs> You know what I mean? Before we can have a conversation in the room, we got to undo what folks think about us before we open our mouths. Yes. You know what that is. Yes. Angry yes. black woman. Yep. Uh, you know, all of that, all of that stuff that we carry with us without our opening our mouths before we put clothes on in the morning. All of that stuff. Mm. We we bear that. We bear that. We bear that within our race. We bear that as citizens of this country. We bear that. Mm -hmm. And so for this woman to say that, yeah, I'm a wife. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm a mother. Yes, I'm the cornerstone of this community in Chicago. Yes, I'm all these things. And yet, I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I am and and it's worth me finding out. And what's so what what I think is so wonderful about this and I'm not I'm not championing child abandonment. But <laughs> we've talked about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but what is interesting about this is that she has to find herself outside the context of her family. Right. Mm-hmm. She has to find herself outside the context of her community. Yeah. And that that is worth it for her. It is worth it for her. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's it's this thing that, on the one hand, in the writer's room, I was like, well, I want her to stay. I want her to stay. I want her to make that difficult choice. But I also knew there's the version of it where it pays off for nobody but Hippolyta. And I still wanted that. There's mm-hmm. the version of it where it's just for her and that's okay. But because we are telling the story about a family and because we are talking about community, we did have to tie this into the rest of the family. So in episode nine, when Hippolyta returns, she has this incredible, first of all, like her voice is different. Like the way she talks is different. I'm saying it like it's not you, but you (laughs) like... (laughs) <laughs> I'm the way she's like I was on planet 504 and this happened and this happened and I'm going to save my daughter it's like she's so different nobody can name her anymore mm-hmm. and that's why she's able to say I will just plug into the machine and she's doing everything in her power to keep the portal open for the other characters to return she starts to transform she's literally becoming Arithia Blue right before our eyes and it's so incredible I don't know where you disappeared to but you're starting to sound crazy I was on Earth 504, and I was there the equivalent of 200 years on this Earth. I could name myself anything, infinite possibilities. It came with infinite wisdom, and I'm going to use all of it to save my daughter. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you played that scene and what it means to you and and what you think it means for Hippolyta to do this? Well, I love the fact that her daughter paints her like that, that that's just beautiful like that is just that's just beautiful as a as a mama's girl myself you know that <laughs> even though she she had to separate from d that she's still connected connected through arithia blue connected through her daughter's imagination which i think is really really important that it is through her imagination that she's connected that is not it's not earth Born, you know what I mean? It's not earthen. Yes. You know what I mean? That it's yes. still stuff that you can't grasp. 
that's communication that her and only her and her daughter can share. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a there's a liberation in that. I claim that as liberation. And then on the on the practical side of that, you know, Lovecraft is weird. I don't know how else to say it. Like, (laughs) you know, Lovecraft is weird. You know, acting is weird, period. It's not like I come home at the end of the day and I talk to my sister, I talk to my, you know, loved ones and I say, you know, girl, because it doesn't translate. You know, it just does not make any sense at all. Even if with a regular job where I'm playing a, a regular person. But with this, it's like, yeah, so... And then the machines, the machine didn't work. So we had to do that take again. And then like the, then the and then the, you know, there's nothing I can say that would ever make sense. Yeah. And I love that. I love, mm. I love that. And like I said, I just gave into it. I just, I just gave into it. I put that harness on. Yes, I complained about it. You know what I mean? It was, it was tight. It was tight in all the wrong places, if you know what I'm saying. Like, yep. Anjanu made sacrifices for us that day. She made sacrifices. I'm just going to be interested to see how it turns out. You know, right? Because it was crazy doing it, and it was fun doing it. It's incredible. It's incredible to watch. Yeah. Well, we could keep you here for 17 more hours, but we won't. We could. Thank you so much. We love you. We love Hippolyta. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You guys have a good day. That was so beautiful. I feel so full. Shannon, why don't you take us away with some references and recommendations to close this episode out? We have The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot by Tim Madigan. I recommend doing a little research on J.B. Stratford. He was the owner of the Stratford Hotel and lots of other properties on Black Wall Street. Incredible story there. Also recommend researching Olivia Hooker. She was the last survivor of the Tulsa riots. She passed away in 2018. Also um, a woman with an incredible story. A couple of essays that I've been thinking about lately and that I think connect to this storyline as well. There's an essay called The East Snuff of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile by Courtney Baker and another one called American Horror Story by Ezekiel Kweku. What else do we have, Ashley? We've got Sonia Sanchez's Catch the Fire, Flying West by Pearl Clash, which I really, really love, Horton Spiller's Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, Reading Black, Reading Feminist, which is an iconic anthology of essays with works from Spillers, Hazel, Carby, Zora Neale Hurston, Bell Hooks, and so many more. That is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. The show is hosted by us. I'm Shannon Houston. And I'm Ashley C. Ford. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Agarina Shashagre is our managing producer. Our lead producer is Jess Jupiter. And our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Natalie Brennan. Our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, and Noriko Akabe is our engineer. Original music by composer Amanda Jones. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO and HBO Max. 
We'll be back next week for our final episode, episode yeah. 10. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm nervous. <sighs> We're going to do it, though. Episode 10 premieres on HBO and streams on HBO Max on October 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern. See you then. 